Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tonight on The Readout. Well, I think we should be concerned. Look, uh, there's nothing automatic about democracy. And I think we're at one of those inflection points in history where we've reached a point where there has been such a division that uh, you have what I call the the mega-mega Republicans who are uh, think that it's all right to threaten violence, think it's that's not inappropriate. An MSNBC exclusive. President Joe Biden sits for an exclusive interview with Jonathan Capehart. Also, breaking news on several fronts inc- involving Trump and his cronies, including the January 6th committee issuing a subpoena, ordering Trump to testify under oath and turn over documents within weeks. Steve Bannon knows what it means to defy the committee's subpoenas. Today, he was sentenced to four months in prison. Plus, the bombshell new reporting on what was in those highly classified documents that Trump stole and stashed at Mar-a-Lago. We begin tonight with President Joe Biden and what he faces in the closing weeks till Election Day. It's a critical time for any first-term president, but an especially weird one for Biden, who inherited a pandemic his predecessor worsened, along with a nation in shambles, only to now face the persistent yet false narrative that he hasn't done anything. This narrative flourishes despite his approval rating of 46 percent, a 10 point increase since July, according to a new CNBC poll. That's a little bit below President Obama's first term average, but it's better than where Donald Trump stood at this stage. But numbers or or facts mean little to Republicans who revel in hating President Biden, looking for anything and everything to pin on his shoulders from inflation to gas prices to crime. And just for a fact check here, we should note that inflation is an international phenomenon hitting the entire world, not just the U.S. Gas prices have been falling for months and violent crime is not historically high. And it literally has nothing to do with the president of the United States. Still, Republicans have decided that those are the issues that they can win back power on. So they're closing midterm messages that Biden isn't paying attention to the real issues impacting Americans. But in real life, Biden has objectively had a successful term, especially this year. There's the American Rescue Plan, which included a third direct stimulus payment while expanding unemployment benefits, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure and Jobs Reinvestment Act, which will get blue-collar Americans working, physically rebuilding America. He also broke a 30-year streak of federal inaction on gun violence legislation. I mean, that's a lot. Biden has arguably done more for young people than any president in generations. His student loan forgiveness plan is expected to benefit 30 million Americans lifting crushing debt as soon as this weekend. As for campaign promises, he nominated the first black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court, something he promised to do. We also saw the largest act of clemency in a generation, his mass pardon for people convicted of federal marijuana possession, as well as taking marijuana off of Schedule One. I mean, there's more, a lot more. But with Election Day just weeks away, this seems like a good time to hear from the president himself. And so today, he sat down for an exclusive interview with my colleague, Jonathan Capehart. We now bring you that interview, airing for the first time right now. 
Mr. President, thank you very much for being here. Happy to be with you, John. Now, we're here at Delaware State University where you talked about college affordability, your student debt relief program, and we'll get to that uh, in a moment. But we got to talk about um, some of the big news today, the biggest being the January 6th committee formally subpoenaed a former president, Donald Trump. Um, there are a lot of issues involved here. Should he comply? Well, look, uh, I'm not going to opine on what he should do, but I think the committees handle it very well. And they've been straightforward and to the point, and uh, it seems to me that it would make sense, but uh, I'm not going to get because if I get in that, then they're going to, then it's, well, am I influencing the committee and the rest? So I've been very... Very circumspect about anything I've been saying. One more question on that, though. What would it say to the American people if he didn't testify, do you think? Well, to a portion of them, they'd say, uh, that's great. And to a larger portion, I think they'd say that was a mistake. Um, Mr. President, I'll be honest. I'm scared. Millions of Americans are scared. They're concerned about the, the concerted attacks on democracy, on, on voting, um, and how that's going to impact the midterm elections. We're seeing everything from Governor DeSantis's election police force arresting people for alleged violations of voter, uh, voter fraud. Um, we're seeing um, election workers quitting because of threats. And then on top of it, you've got election deniers up and down the ballot uh, running for election. A good chunk of them could win. So why shouldn't we be scared? Well, I think we should be concerned. Look, uh, there's nothing automatic about democracy. Remember when you're in undergraduate school, they talk about every generation has to protect democracy. Well, it really does. And I think we're at one of those inflection points in history where we've reached a point where there has been such a division that uh, you have what I call the, uh, the mega mega Republicans who are uh, think that it's all right to threaten violence, think it's, that's not inappropriate, talk about how they are concerned about security, but yet you saw what happened on January 6th, the whole world saw it. Um, and, uh, but I, I think there's reason for concern, but I'm optimistic about two things, Jonathan. Number one, we've been here before, um, and, uh, and I, I believe that the essence of who we are as a nation, the soul of our country, is really about our commitment to the basic fundamental elements that make us Americans, which is the idea of fairness, decency, honesty. And I think it's baked in to the majority of the American people. And, uh, and I think as long as we take seriously the threat, I don't think the threat can come to fruition. Well, on that point, Mr. President, there was a, a startling headline in the New York Times. Let me see if I can, if I can find it, where it said that um, a majority of Americans believe that democracy is under threat, and yet they don't see it as a priority, protecting democracy. I, I mean, I, why I, do you I think, think that is? Well, I think they do. I, I think under threat and their concern on other issues meld. In other words, you know, when they say it's under threat, they worry about basic rights being taken away. They worry about the idea that you can have a, uh, a, a people in public life, talked about one another the way they do with such bitterness. Look, you know, the organizing, we're, we're unique in all of, all of history. We're the most unique nation in the world. And I'm not, being, I'm not trying to beat our chest about who we are as Americans. 
we're the only nation that is not built on ethnicity, geography, whatever. It's on a notion that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal. We've never fully lived up to it. We've never walked away from it. And it's a core of all of this, I think, is that concern. It's a concern that, that uh, you know, the, the soul is sort of the breath and the essence of who we are. And it ultimately gets down to not supporting violence, not supporting, making sure that you have, you count the votes when they're cast, not intimidating anyone who's at the polls, not intimidating anyone who wants to vote. And I still think that's rock bottom core issue in America. How did we get to this point, though? Well, I think there are a number of things that happened. Number one, I think that uh, we, uh, we began to uh, we had a leader who concluded that that the, the truth didn't matter a whole lot and used the modern version of the old racist kind of baiting that we used to that used to be the case you know 40 50 years ago in parts of the country and and I think it, it just, uh, I don't think enough people took it seriously to begin with. And uh, for me, what changed things for me was I hadn't planned on running again. And I think you know this. If I'm taking too much time, stop me. But And when I saw those folks down in Charlottesville coming out of the fields, carrying Nazi swastikas, torches, singing the same anti-Semitic bile that was sung at the time in, in the 30s in Germany, and accompanied by the white supremacists, the young woman got killed. Heather mm -hmm. Heyer. And they asked, and I talked to her mom. And when she got killed, and the president was asked, what do you think? He said, there are fine people on both sides. No president's ever said anything like that. And it's a reflection of this notion that whatever it takes to have power is appropriate. Uh, and I just, I just find it... Uh, disturbing. And I believe, though, that in 2020, for example, more people showed up to vote than any time in American history. I think they're going to do it again. On that point about people being in it for power, power's sake, a far, a far right conservative um, person said earlier this month about the Senate race in Georgia, and I quote, I don't care if Herschel Walker paid to abort endangered baby eagles. I want control of the Senate. You were in the Senate a long time, 1973 to 2008. You know that institution inside and out better than anybody probably who's ever served. In, in that time, you served with many Republicans. Many conservative Republicans. Right, super conservative Republicans. My question to you, though, Mr. President, is can our democracy survive when the Republican Party is, it only cares about power? Well, look, I, uh, I think that... If we allow the Republican Party to continue to metastasize into what a minority of the party as a whole is. I, look, I think one of the reasons there's not more mainstream conservative Republicans running out there is because they are so concerned about not only their physical well-being, but also the notion that how can they win when a minority of Republicans are showing up to vote and they're really hard-edged. Mm -hmm. Look, I, I don't agree with anything that Liz Cheney believes about the substantive issues, but I admire the hell out of her. 
She means what she says. She doesn't support the notion of use of violence. She doesn't support the notion she insists that there's basic fundamental rules. And it used to be that way all through the Senate. I mean, hell, I served with Jim Eastland and Strom Thurmond. You know, I served with really conservative members of the United States Senate. But afterwards, after we'd argue like hell, we'd go down to the Senate dining room and everybody'd eat together. There, there, there was still an understanding that the differences may be profound, but they don't justify the kind of activities you're seeing today. Well, you mentioned Congresswoman Cheney, who has uh, battled a lot with now House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Um, he could be the next Speaker of the House if the Republicans take the majority. Um, and he said about support of, financial support of Ukraine that, it, that Ukraine, support for Ukraine, quote, it can't be a blank check. Um, in response, you said, among other things, these guys don't get it and they have no sense of American foreign policy. But given what, what Leader McCarthy said, should he even be speaker? Well, look, I can understand somebody having that view who's uninformed and believe it because it costs so much money to help them. We're spending a lot of money helping the Ukrainians. But it's so much more than Ukrainians. It's about NATO. It's about Western Europe. It's about, it's about making sure that, that, that Putin is not able to pr- succeed in a way that he is using the brutality of his activities. And, uh, and I think that, uh, um, I, I just think it's, it's about, again, this notion of, of power and either, either lack, of ign- I mean, lack of knowledge or power. One of the two is the driving force, maybe both. But I, I don't know. Look, Jonathan, I think that this is not a referendum. This is a choice, a choice between what kind of country you want, between, for example, do you let us, do, 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 do you make sure that we're able to afford prescription drugs for people that are elderly? Do we have a circumstance where we're able to negotiate Medicare is able to negotiate drug prices. Do we, are we in a position where, and you go down the list of all the issues that are out there. And, uh, and we know that, look, the Republicans have made it clear. First thing they want to do is they, a lot of, most of them voted against the, the, the bill to reconstruct America through the infrastructure bill, highways, roads. You know, they all voted against, to a person, voted against the Inflation Reduction Act, which provides for environmental security and safety. And I mean, I, I, I just don't, they, they, they don't have a platform other than tear down what I've been able to do, we've been able to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what they're for. Much more with Jonathan Capehart's exclusive interview with President Biden when the readout returns. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. 
That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. More now with Jonathan Capehart's exclusive interview with President Biden. You unveiled a new attack line uh, earlier today. You dropped it here just a moment ago, but the full line was mega, mega, trickle down. Um, Surely you consider your student loan forgiveness program um, to be an antidote to that. But here's a problem, I think, for you and, and Democrats. Despite all the good economic news, low unemployment, record job creation, um, wage increases, Social Security um, cost of living adjustment to 8.7 percent, the highest in 40 years. And yet poll after poll shows that the uh, American the American people trust Republicans on the economy and think that Republicans should control Congress. How do you how do you break through that? I'm not sure about the polls. Because, you know, the way people conduct polls today, it's hard. 90% of it is you get on a telephone where you have to call seven times to get somebody to, to answer the phone, number one. Number two, a lot of what we've done and we've passed has not kicked in yet. For example, you know, we have all this money to rebuild the highways, bridges, Internet, et cetera. But it's going to take time. It's not all happening overnight. It's not like we passed the law and all of a sudden the highways and bridges are all functioning. It's not like we're in a position where we're saying no senior, which we do, is going to have to pay more than $2,000 a year for their drug costs, even so some are paying 13 14 15 with help with their families because of cancer drugs and the like. It hadn't kicked in. It doesn't kick in until next year. So a lot of what we've done, people are, are hurting. They're hurting because, you know, when you, when you take away that margin for people sitting around the kitchen table and they're paying, you know, three times as much or two times or one and a half times as much for the gasoline, it matters. I grew up in a family where when that occurred, it was a discussion at home. Um, and so I think this is a process of people making sure that what we say we're doing really is going to happen. And, they, and so that's why these last several weeks, what I'm doing is saying, here's what we're for, here's what they're for, and make a choice and vote. And I think people are going to show up and vote like they did last time. One of the things you said you're for, Mr. President, is codifying Roe. You yes. said you've said you need uh, 51 or 53 seats uh, in order in, in the Senate in order to make that hat make that happen. But what happens if Republicans take control of Congress? How are you going to protect women? Veto anything they do. They have to get for, for them to make Dobbs, for, for, for them to outlaw Roe, outlaw the right of a woman to make a choice with their doctor, to not make exceptions for rape and incest, and et cetera, uh, and pass it out of the Congress to make it the law of the land. The president has to sign it. I'll veto it. Mm-hmm. One more question, Mr. President. You haven't officially said you're running for, for re-election, but NBC's Mike Memoli, who you know well, quotes a senior staffer to the First Lady um, that a 2024 re-election campaign, quote, 
is something both Dr. Biden and the family fully support. And seeing that took me back to your book, your 2017 book, Promise Me, Dad. Um, you wrote about how your late son, Bo, insisted that you run for president in 2016. As we know, you, you didn't. You ran in 2020. But um, you write in the book that uh, Bo said it was, quote, your obligation, your, quote, duty to run. Um, and you also write, duty was a word Bo Biden did not use lightly. You're president now. And there are plenty of people who are saying that you shouldn't run again because of your age. I'm wondering, what do you think Bo Biden would say to those people who think you shouldn't run again? It's not so much he'd say to those people, what he'd say to me, in my view. The only reason to be involved in public life is can you make life better for other people? And depending on who the opponent is, if they have a view that is so and such the antithesis of what I believe democracy and I believe is good for average Americans, um, then uh, his argument was, Dad, you have an obligation to do something. The reason I'm not making a judgment about formally running or not running, once I make that judgment, a whole series of regulations kick in. And I have to be, I treat myself as a candidate from that moment on. I have not made that formal decision, but it's my intention. My intention to run again. And we have time to make that decision. Uh, Dr. Biden is for it. Mr. President. Oh, Dr. Biden thinks that, uh, my wife thinks that, uh, that I, uh, that, that, we're, that we're doing something very important and that I shouldn't walk away from it. Joseph R. Biden, President of the United States, thank you very much. Thank you, Jonathan. Joining me now from Dover, Delaware, is Jonathan Capehart, host of The Sunday Show on MSNBC, and Michael Beschloss, NBC News presidential historian. And Jonathan, I had to laugh at the back because Joseph Robinette Biden was not going to really tell us what Dr. Biden really thinks about whether he should run for president. <laughs> that was a very diplomatic answer. But I, mean, I thought it was interesting, too, that he... You know, he's a process guy. He's a Senate guy. And he said, if I say I'm running, a whole lot of stuff kicks in, Hatch Act, all these regulations. So I found that very interesting. Mm -hmm. Did you get from him, you've covered him a long time, a, a sense of sort of determination to run again for president? A sense of duty is the word that you used uh, regarding what his son might think? Mm hmm. Well, before I answer your question, Joy, I want to thank you very much for giving so much real estate to show the interview I did with the president today. Thank you very much. And to answer your question, I came away thinking he's running that last line. What he said in the interview was like, we're, what we're doing is important and I shouldn't walk away from that. After you know what duty means to him and obligation means to him, you can't hear that last line and not think he's running for president again. Uh, and throughout the interview, he made it clear he's uh, ready to go after Republicans. He's ready, you know, his mega, mega, mega trickle down <laughs> economics line. His this is people say this election is about a referendum. No, it's about a choice. And then ticked through what the choices are. 
in this election? Yeah, the president, President Biden is determined. He's determined to do everything he can to help Democrats in the best way he can to hold the majorities in Congress. And then looking forward to two years, I think um, he's rutted. And it's funny. And he said, uh, no, funny, he, he, he's, he even has a plan. You know, if if Roe, if they try to take away a nationally a woman's right to choose, he said, I'm ready to veto it. So he's got a pen and a phone, as, uh, right. as his his uh, his buddy, uh, President Obama, used to say. Let me bring you in, Michael Beschloss. One of the things I think is interesting about Joe Biden, he's been in the he's been in politics for so long that he sort of comes yeah. comes off as a, also a bit of an historian of the United States Senate and talked about even having worked with some of the most you know racist Dixiecrats ever. But they could work together and figure things out. He talked about the fact that the United States is not built on ethnicity. It's unique in that, but built on a notion and idea. We've heard him say that before. That comes to the core of the battle we're having right now, that the U.S. is not China or India. We are a country that is not based on ethnicity, and we're kind of at war. We are at war. And, you know, you both know that Joe Biden was a history major in college that I think doesn't get enough attention because he reads a lot, he thinks of these things in these terms, plus he's been in national politics for 50 years, so he's seen a lot of history and made it himself. Jonathan, great interview. I love the way you began by saying, I'm scared, because that cut through everything. A lot of Americans are right to be scared tonight, because we could lose our democracy, and it could happen in 17 days with this election. If you had been interviewing Lincoln in 1860, I would think that you would have told him you were scared that the Union would break up. Or Franklin Roosevelt in 1940, that you were scared that the world might be overcome by Hitler and Mussolini and the fascist Japanese. So using that long view of history, Joy, that you're talking about, you know, let's get get down to it. 50 years from now, what's likely to be the most important thing that future historians and Americans say about the election of 2022, I would say it's going to be democracy is on the knife's edge. Without yeah. democracy, you can't have a better economy. You won't have elections, won't have rule of law, won't have institutions of democracy. So everyone who's watching us, uh, all I can say is that if you've got something better to do during the next 17 days, fine. But you'll have to live for the rest of your life with the possibility that we could lose our democracy in 17 days. Thank God we've got a president who understands that. Yeah, indeed. And as always, as uh, Jonathan would want to do, those of you who uh, enjoy the Sunday show as much as I do know that Jonathan always has to make us smile at some point during the show, no matter how horrible the, horrible the news is. Please. And in this interview, I know that you did have a moment. A lot of folks have come to know your auntie, uh, who you get a lot of wisdom from. Um, and you brought up auntie to President Biden. I want you to describe mm -hmm. that moment for us and what happened. So I brought up on Gloria because she's been in his corner since he ran in 2020 when no one else wanted to be. Uh, but then I asked her in preparation for this interview on Gloria, do you want him to run again? And she said, I love Joe Biden, but I I don't I think he might be too old. If he if Trump runs, I want him to run. Yeah. But I don't know. So I asked the president that. And and he gave probably the, the most extensive answer on the age question that I've heard him give. Yeah. And we're going to get that on the Sunday show this weekend. Um, so we're, there it is. There, oh, there it is. Wait a minute. It, who is he calling? Oh, yeah. Who is? He's calling on Gloria. So <laughs> after that, he said, what's her number? Let me call her. So he called her. But right there, you see him. He took it off speaker to talk to her. She didn't believe him. 
And so First of all, it's like you'll see on Sunday what happens after that. That, and that's a heck of a – you see how we do a tease? Y'all going to have to wait till the Sunday show to find out what was said on that phone call. Aunt Gloria got a call from President Biden. That is Biden Bidening. He's Bidening out of control. Congratulations, Jonathan. Excellent interview. Uh, thank you very much for bringing it to us tonight. Thank you, Joy. Well done, my friend. Well done. Thank you. All right, Michael Beschloss is going to be back later. And, of course, you can watch the, in, the rest of the interview, all the rest of it that we just teased for you. On that exclusive interview with President Biden, you can tune in on Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC for that. All right. Up next. The January 6th committee makes it official with a subpoena accusing Trump of personally orchestrating efforts to overturn the election. And Steve Bannon is sentenced for defying a congressional subpoena. And pretty soon, one of those three shirts that he loves to wear will be orange. Stay with us. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Okay, now for the other huge news of the day, disgraced, twice impeached former President Donald Trump has officially been subpoenaed by the House January 6th Committee. In a letter to Trump Committee Chair Benny Thompson and Vice Chair Liz Cheney spelled out why in the clearest possible terms. Quote, as demonstrated in our hearings, we have assembled overwhelming evidence, including from dozens of your former appointees and staff, that you personally orchestrated and oversaw a multi-part effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. In short, you were at the center of the first and only effort by any U.S. president to overturn an election and obstruct the peaceful transfer transition of power, ultimately culminating in a bloody attack on our own capital and on the Congress itself. Donald Trump has until November 4th to produce relevant documents and must appear for a deposition on or about November 14th. Write that date down after the midterm election, by the way. Now, we'll see if he has the guts to show up. The subpoena also represents his community, also requests his communications with Steve Bannon, who showed why he didn't want to testify to the committee since like a Scooby-Doo villain, he gave up the whole plan in advance. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's all converging. And now we're on, as they say, the point of attack. Right. The point of attack tomorrow. 
And we got away with it, too, if it weren't for those darn kids and those stupid dogs. And a year after refusing a subpoena from the committee, directly asking him to explain those very comments. Today, a federal judge sentenced Trump's chief strategist to four months in prison and a $6,500 fine on contempt of Congress charges. Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney and law professor at the University of Alabama. Uh, and she's one of our—we we, we have all our friends that are our unofficial law professors while I take a pretend law course on this class. But I love listening to you guys explain things. So I read through this— subpoena. I found it very interesting as a layperson to read it. Few things stood out to me. First of all, this is what they're asking for. I mean, this is what they're alleging, that Trump purposely and maliciously disseminated false allegations of fraud related to the election, attempted to corrupt the DOJ, illegally pressured state officials to change election results, orchestrated and oversaw an effort to obtain and transmit false electoral certificates, pressuring Pence to refuse to count electoral votes, pressuring members of Congress to uh, object to valid state elections, filing false information, summoning um, thousands of supporters and refusing to disband those riders. One of the things that I did find interesting is there are only a few people who are named specifically in this filing. One of them is Representative Scott Perry, and then they lump him in and say, or other members of Congress. Um, is that significant if they pick out individual, one individual congressman out of all of them? It is very interesting. They've asked in part for all documents that Trump has that represent communications he had with Perry. And that's a very intriguing detail. I don't think the committee does that sort of thing lightly. But yeah. look, Joy, the way this subpoena reads, it's like if this was a, a drug case, they would be telling Trump, you're the drug kingpin. You're the guy who's running the cartel. They're putting him right in the center of everything. To that very point, because I also found this interesting, too. They are looking for um, any any uh, con communications with the United States Secret Service. They named Tony Ornato specifically. He's another person that's individually named. And then they ask for anything regarding paying the legal fees for any such witnesses, finding, offering, or discussing employment for any such witnesses, and then any conversations with Ornato or the Secret Service. That, again, you're talking about a drug kingpin. It sounds like they are maybe alleging that he was uh, tampering with witnesses. I, that's the insinuation. It's tough to read this any other way. Whether they have strong reason to believe that or not is an open question, since they haven't really told us what they have. I think one thing that we can be sure of is that if there is any response to this subpoena from Trump, which is certainly a question that's up in the air, there will be a privilege long that will be, you know, yay long. He will claim executive privilege. He will claim attorney client privilege. He will fight like crazy to resist turning this information over if he has it. And one more thing, they named the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. We know there are seditious conspiracy charges going on now. What's the significance of wanting to know if there were any communications? This is what they say. From the period of September 1, 2020 to the present, all documents, including communications relating to or referring in any way to the Oath Keepers or any members, the Proud Boys, any members or other similar militia groups or its members. We know Denver Riggleman has said a call came from the White House to somebody that was involved in the insurrection. Do you think they're trying to make a connection between the seditious conspiracy we know is being charged to members of those groups and Trump? I think they have to be. This is really the missing link. Based yeah. on the public evidence, it seems very clear that there's evidence that Trump was involved in a conspiracy to defraud the government or interfere with the government. But the seditious conspiracy piece, which requires the use of force, has always been a little bit more opaque. And this is certainly the committee saying, hey, if you've got anything, we'd like to see it.
Yeah, absolutely. And one more little thing here. You've got uh, Trump has finally found a firm to handle his January 6th subpoena. There was this weird thing where it didn't seem like anyone would accept the subpoena. So I guess now they've got a firm. Uh, how much uh, is that? So this is the Dillon Law Firm. They already represent multiple witnesses who appeared before the committee. They represent Michael Flynn, they, Sebastian Gorka, the, uh, Amy Kramer from Women for America. If you're a firm representing all of those people, how do you avoid conflicts of interest? What if one of them wants to testify against Trump in a later proceeding? Yeah, it's awfully hard to avoid that conflict, as, as you point out. Maybe less of a problem if you're talking about January 6th committee proceedings. Sure. If you're moving into some form of a criminal investigation at some point, though, that conflict becomes very apparent. It's going to be fascinating to see if he shows up for it and what happens if he doesn't. Dun, dun, dun. That's the music we play when we're it's like a tease to see what happens. That's bad. Uh, Joyce is going to stick around with us. We're not going to let her go yet. We've still got a lot to talk about, including explosive new reporting on some of the incredibly sensitive documents that were recovered from Trump's secret hideaway stash in Florida. We'll be right back. Major revelations tonight on some of the highly sensitive documents recovered by the FBI at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. NBC News has learned that classified intelligence regarding Iran and China were among the documents. The Washington Post reports, but NBC News has not confirmed, that at least one of the documents seized by the FBI describes Iran's missile program. Other documents describe highly sensitive intelligence work aimed at China, according to people familiar with the matter. The Post adds, if shared with others, the people said, such information could expose intelligence gathering methods that the United States wants to keep hidden from the world. A Justice Department spokesperson declined to comment to NBC News. Trump put out a statement earlier that did not directly deny this reporting. He only criticized the supposed leaking from the DOJ and again baselessly claimed that the National Archives and the FBI may have planted documents. Trump has yet to offer any explanation as to why he would need to retain any of the thousands of documents that were taken to his Florida golf resort. Joining me now is Javed Ali, former senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council and associate professor at the University of Michigan's Ford School of Public Policy. And our friend Joyce Vance is back with me. Uh, Mr. Ali, let me go to you on this. This is scary stuff. I, I don't understand how somebody could possess this kind of very, very sensitive material. And the FBI knows that he had it because they took it from his house and not be in jail. Your thoughts? Yeah, Joy, thanks for having me again. And uh, based on the most recent reporting today about what apparently um, some of these documents um, reveal, certainly the ones that had the the top secret SCI markings that you've shown on um, the images before, as a former intelligence analyst and someone who used to write these kind of intelligence products for senior officials, um, this this confirmed an assumption I had that um, these the, the very highly classified documents um, that President Trump had were um, probably being delivered through an intelligence product called the Presidential Daily Brief, and as the name mm. suggests, it is a, a product that gets delivered five to six, six uh, five to six days a week to the president um, <coughs> and other senior officials, and within it, it contains the most sensitive intelligence and um, the stories that policymakers need to know to keep the country safe. So how some of these were retained by President Trump and then um, taken to Mar-a-Lago, I mean, this is one of the mysteries of, of uh, what's been uncovered. Can you think of any reason why a president would take their presidential daily brief documents home? Uh, not home. Now, as a commander in chief, um, theoretically, one would think that any president would have the 
authority when that um, presidential daily brief, if that's indeed what um, the st- these documents were, these most sensitive ones, to request them to be retained. But then even if they were to be retained and acting in your capacity as, as the president, that you wouldn't just stash them in the resolute desk. Um, you would put them in some other part of the White House in which you could store very sensitive intelligence products like this. So um, that's how they would be handled if in your official capacity you made the request. There's no scenario in which you would then, upon leaving office, take them with you in your personal capacity. And that should be self-evident, you know, and Joyce, this is what I think a lot of folks don't understand, that I don't think there is any other person in this country who could take home classified documents this sensitive about Iran's missile program, about China's national security, and not be arrested. You also have a Bloomberg headline here that Trump prosecutors um, see evidence for obstruction charges. This is what Bloomberg reports. A group of Justice Department prosecutors believe there is sufficient evidence to charge Trump with obstruction of justice. But the path to actual indictment is far from clear. It's also unlikely officials would bring only obstruction charges amid several other Trump investigations into potential crimes. I don't understand how this person seems to have so much impunity. Can you just explain that to us? So I think the reality is that Trump does not have impunity here. And the facts continue to get worse in this matter, Joy, but they've been bad from the get-go. DOJ prosecutes this kind of case when there are plus factors, and they executed their search warrant knowing that there were already plus factors in the room. There was obstruction of justice being committed by the former president. Now this new news makes this incredibly serious. Yes, this sort of information about Iran, for instance, and about China, this isn't the sort of stuff that you can just pick up on the internet. This requires very specific sorts of sourcing and intelligence work. And so compromising those sources and methods is extraordinarily serious, even if these documents never left Mar-a-Lago, because they compromise our country's ability to continue that collection work. They make it more difficult for the intelligence community to work with the kind of people who aid us in collecting this sort of information. But there is, of course, the prospect that this information did not remain contained in Mar-a-Lago, and that, too, bears very serious implications. I think we're at the point where the assumption about uh, prosecution in this matter is not a matter of if, but more a matter of when DOJ will indict. Hey, let me just very quick, I want to jump back for just a second, because now Trump also has a subpoena from the January 6th committee. Could the Department of Justice indict Trump the way they did Bannon for uh, contempt of Congress without a formal, you know, request to do so from the committee? Let's say, for instance, the committee is disbanded because Republicans now control Congress. Joyce. They can. DOJ doesn't require a referral from Congress, although that's really the convention in this sort of case. I think it would be unusual to see that without a referral. But, you know, at some point, Joy, DOJ's got its hands really full with Trump. I mean, they're already looking at January 6th. Now they're looking at Mar-a-Lago. Do they really have the bandwidth to take on this additional case? It really points to how rampant the criminality that this former president was willing to engage in was. It's like a one-man crime family. But very quickly to you, Javed Ali, um, if anyone else had these documents, you as an intelligent professional, what would you assume they were doing with them? If they had taken them outside of their official capacity and then, you know, upon leaving government, um, one would 
potentially speculate that they were trying to then leverage them for some financial purpose or sell them to another foreign government or some other um, sort of stakeholder who would have an interest in, in something as sensitive like that. Now, is that indeed the case with what was going on with President Trump? We don't know that. Yeah. But the fact that he had them in and, in and of themselves and they were not officially declassified, which is yeah. pretty clear based on how the documents were recovered, that is also very concerning. What happened after they were in Mar-a-Lago is another issue altogether. And, and, and not to mention the, the ones that were had nothing inside the folders. Uh, Javed Ali, Joyce Vance, thank you both very much. Don't go anywhere. Because, listen, it's been a crazy week. We need who won the week. And that's straight ahead. <laughs> Well, we've made it to another Friday. Thank you, Jesus. Which can only mean one thing, and it's time to play. Ah, yes, who won the week? Back with me, our friend and in-house historian, Michael Veslas. Uh, Michael, who won the week? Uh, British people. Uh, they chose a disaster, <laughs> list Truss, as prime minister. And unlike Americans, they got rid of her in 44 days. We elected a disaster by, you know, in, in 2016, and we were stuck with him for four days. <laughs> I've been feeling a little bit envious of the British system. I'm telling you, I, I had a, a guy on, a, a, a writer who said, we are much more like South America than we are like Europe. And I feel that every single Sadly. day in terms of the way that our country is structured. Well, my who won the week is even better than that. And she didn't last as long as a head of lettuce. But mine is even better. You know who won, who won the week, Michael Besloss? No, you no ma'am. You, you. Really? You won the week. I actually really wanted to go to this event, but you were awarded. There it is. The National Archives Foundation honored you, my friend, with the Records of Achievement Award this week. Historians are heroes. You all make sense. You personally make sense of the things that can't be made sense of on this show. We value you so much. We value your voice, Thanks. your integrity, you, your George. brilliance. You're just a lot of fun, my friend. You won the week. Thank you so much. So grateful. Thank Congratulations. you. Love being Michael with you Best. Always. Oh, well, we, we don't make too many plans for the seven o'clock hour. We love having you okay. back, my friend. Okay. Thank you very much. Michael Bestloss, have a great weekend. You won the week. And before we go, uh, with two weeks to go until the midterm, just two weeks, guys, the readout is hitting the road. I will be live from the Flying Saucer in Fort Worth, Texas, on Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, where my guest will include the Democratic nominee for Governor Beto O'Rourke. You don't want to miss it. That's tonight's readout. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.